I'm Holiday. I'm Taraday. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Ah. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. <laughs> Sicily, 1912. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another exciting and thrilling episode of Killers, Cults, and Nut Jobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I'm, as always, the great white snark, your host, Scotty J. And across from me is the beautiful and twisted Monica. Hi! God, I screwed that one up tonight. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, he's beautiful and twisted. So, right. But I mean, I I, I screwed mine up. It's just a rough day of work and oh, well, yeah, rough couple of weeks and um, forgot uh, neglected to mention when we we're talking before about the anniversaries that I did post it on in the oh, group. Oh yeah, um, and an, a couple uh, days ago. Yeah. Right. Upcoming. Uh, try that again. Take two. Upcoming topic. Don't know when. Depends on how fast I can finish the book. Waco. Which I'm also reading. So. Right. So uh, I think. Oh, excuse me. I just got done having dinner. Mom made a mean batch of uh, tuna casserole. Ooh. Yeah. I had three helpings. Ooh. I was hungry. <laughs> you think? No, I know. <laughs> when dinner wasn't ready at five, I was like pacing downstairs like my nephew Porcupine, just you know, looking for some food. Yeah, but, uh, my light thing is like I charged it, and it's like coming. Like, man, this thing's a piece of junk. But um, in reading this book, I think I know how I'm gonna how I'm gonna structure the show. How are you going to structure it? I I think. At least one episode will devote to like the history of the Branch Davidians. Makes sense because that's like how. Are, how right. And then. Or we could start like the Seinfeld episode and go backwards. Right. <laughs> the, the classic sitcom trope. Yeah. Here's. We're going to start with the raid and we'll work our way backwards. Well, technically, the it was the. Fire. Then we would go to the raid. Then we right. But yeah, thirty years today was the raid. God, I man, there's there's times where I'm reading this book, mm-hmm. and and I can see elements of my father in in Koresh. I can see elements of Manson. It's all camp like thirty years. All right, I God thirty. Oh my. I'm trying to think. Oh no, I remember what I was doing. I was um, I was down. It was at the house I grew up, and I was in the kitchen. I was getting something, and the the news was on, and I'm watching, watching them like the fire pouring out and the tank busting in through the wall, and I'm like, like, yeah, fuck, it's Texas, okay. What's like? I remember like post on my page i was talking to one of my friends on the phone and my mom came like running down to the basement saying that the compound was on fire it was all like remember like 
watching the news every day, wondering, you know, what hell was going to happen. Right. Yeah, the big tower, I guess, which was supposed to be his room, watching that come down in flames. But And then two days ago, it was 30 years since the first World Trade Center attack. Oh, yeah. Those guys. Yeah. Which oh, I see, think- I also had to worry 30 years ago that my father might have gone down there to Waco to... I don't know. Well, McVeigh did, so... <laughs> well, right, but... You know... 30 years ago today. Uh-huh. Sgt. Pepper. T- oh, wait. Wrong, wrong song. What was I say? There's something about February and the threes. Because February Man, it's, and it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, in 93, though, was James Bulger. I mean, of course. Whitey Bulger. No, not Whitey Bulger. The toddler. The one oh, I told you, like, I can yeah. not do. Like, yeah, it can't happen. But, um, but yeah, that was February '93. Well, when I hear James Bulger, I think of Whitey because his yeah, name I, was, I'm the opposite. Yeah, I think. But and then even February 2003 was with um, Columbia. Yeah, and then Station Fire. So there's. Which so I have the books for <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, out this month. So hopefully. God, please let please let me please yeah. let me wake up in a decent month. I know, right? Well, actually, when I wake up tomorrow morning. And the North Hollywood Bank. That's what I'm saying. The North Hollywood right. Bank um, shootout was 26 years ago. Today, I know. So. Well, I know when I wake up tomorrow, I've got 30 days before my vacation starts. So, yay. Yeah. Fortunately, I can't leave till Sunday, but because uh-huh. I have to watch my nephew play soccer, so. Yeah, James is not doing soccer this year. So he uh, Matt is, and I'm going to go support my nephew. Yeah, which I'm all for that because I had to go buy cleats then last year and everything, at least with basketball. You know, it's just a pretty much normal sneakers right. to wear anywhere. So, All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, let's get this circus on the road. After 15 minutes of talking, but yeah, no. there's a lot to discuss with the crime. It was right. crime connected. It's all crime connected. Yeah. Except my, well, I don't know. My, I've nicknamed my nephew El Chapo, so. Crime connected. Right. Because <laughs> the boy's got an arsenal of Nerf guns. Yeah. Yeah, he, he actually had them stashed all over the house here in case the zombies <laughs> came in. Smart move. Hey. <laughs> According to my nephew, zombies can be killed with n- zombies and ghosts can be killed uh-huh. with nerf darts. Yeah, good to know. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I just kind of look and go, sure thing, Matt. No problem. Yep. Mm-hmm. You got us covered there. Yeah, you're good. All right, we're gonna finish up our look at Sylvia Likens with uh, Gertrude's trial. Gertrude and her band of uh, merry misfits there. Now, just put it nicely. <laughs> right, just to put it nicely. Although, you know, if you go look up the pictures online, um, her one daughter just has this smug look on her shot, like, yeah, I did it, so what? Yeah, uh-huh. And Gertrude looks like a grandma to be baking you cookies and, you know. Uh-huh. And not. Right. So Gertrude, the trial. Her children, Paula, John... 
Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard all began on April 18, 1966. All of them were tried together before Judge Rabb at the Indianapolis City County Building. 66, where was Manson during all this? California, or prison, one of the two. Now, the initial jury selection began on this date and continued for several days. Prosecution consisted of Leroy K. New and Marjorie Westner, who announced their intention to seek the death penalty for all five defendants on April 16th. Fire up old Sparky. Fire it up. They also successfully argued before Judge Rad that all the defendants should be tried together as they were ultimately charged with acting in concert in their collective crimes against Likens and that as such, if each were tried separately, neither judge nor jury could hear testimony relating to a total picture of the accumulation of offenses committed, which honestly makes sense. Uh, if they were all involved in it, why separate all the all the uh, defendants? Basically, like the Manson trial. Yeah. And- oh, I have to throw that. I must forgot. Linda Kasabian died last month. Oh, she did? Yeah. So we can discuss this after, but yeah. Wait. Uh-huh. Oh, no, it was Van Houten I thought was cute. Yeah, no, she this Kasabian was the driver, but go ahead. Yeah, we'll discuss right. it after the show. I mean, like, record, but after. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, and this is also kind of like what they do in a RICO charge, too, for criminals. True. You know, they, they kind of lump it all together instead of like, Okay, we're going to put the boss on trial, then the underboss, then his, you know. Also easier and does save money. And oh, it, it does. Yeah. So. I mean, yeah, granted, you got to house them all in detention, but yeah, they're mm-hmm. used to it. Yeah. Now, each prospective juror was questioned by counsels for both prosecution and defense in relation to their opinions regarding capital punishment being a just penalty for first-degree murder and whether a mother was actually responsible for the deportment of her children. I say fry them all, but yeah, that's me. Jurors who expressed any opposition to the death penalty were excused from duty by Leroy New. Any who either worked with children expressed prejudice against an insanity defense or repulsion regarding the actual horrific stature of Sylvia's death were excused by defense counsels. They're lucky they didn't have me because I'd have sat there and went, fry them all. I'll flip the switch. We'll hook them all up, man. One time. Gertrude was defended by William Urbecker. Her daughter, Paula, was defended by George Rice. Richard Hobbs was defended by James G. Netter. John Jr. and Coy Hubbard were defended by Forrest Bowman. My name is Forrest. Forrest Bowman. I'm going to be your attorney. That's my partner, Bubba. Hi, Forrest. The attorneys for Richard Hobb, Coy Hubbard, Paula, and John Jr. claimed that they had been pressured into participating in Lycan's torment, abuse, and torture by Gertrude. Huh, Gertrude pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. One of the first witnesses to testify on behalf of the prosecution was Deputy Coroner Charles Ellis, who testified on April 29th as to the intense pain Likens had suffered 
stating that her fingernails were broken backwards, numerous deep cuts and punctures covered much of her body, and that her lips were essentially in shreds due to her having repeatedly bitten and chewed upon them. Ellis further testified that Likens had been in an acute state of shock for between two and three days prior to her death, and that she may have been in too advanced a state of shock to offer much resistance to any form of subjective treatment in her final hours. Although he emphasized that aside from the extensive swelling inside and around her genitalia, Lincoln's body bore no evidence of direct sexual molestation. On May 2nd and 3rd, Jenny Likens testified against all five defendants, stating that each had repeatedly and extensively, both physically and emotionally, abused her sister, adding that Likens had done nothing to provoke the assaults and that there had been no truth in either the rumors she had been falsely accused of spreading or the slurs each had made against Likens' character. During her testimony, Jenny stated the abuse her sister and, to a much lesser degree, she herself had endured began approximately two weeks after they had begun to live in the Banaszewski household, and that as the abuse her sister was forced to endure escalated, Likens had occasionally been able, sorry, had been unable to produce tears due to her acute state of dehydration. Jenny burst into tears as she recalled how, just days before Likens died, she had said to her, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I am going to die. I can tell it. Sections of Jenny Likens' testimony were later corroborated by that of Randy Lepper, who stated he had once witnessed Likens crying, but that she had shed no actual tears. Lepper also testified to having witnessed Stephanie strike Likens real hard after her mother had ordered her to remove her clothes in his presence. He then visibly smirked as he confessed to having himself beaten Likens on anywhere between 10 and 40 separate instances. You don't smirk in court, dumbass. I know. (laughs) I know that. Like you've been, but yeah. Is that kind of like, like live one on one? Yeah. You know, I've gone for traffic reasons and I still don't smirk in court. On May 10th, a Baptist minister named Roy Julian testified to having known a teenage girl was being abused in the Mashevsky household, although he had failed to report this information to authorities, as having been informed by Gertrude that Likens had made advances to men for money, he had believed the girl was being punished for soliciting. The same day, 13-year-old Judy Duke also testified, admitting to having witnessed Likens once adored salt being rubbed into sores upon her legs until she screamed. Duke also testified to one occasion where she witnessed 10-year-old Shirley Banaszewski rip open Likens' blouse, to which Richard Hobbs had made the casual remark, everybody's having fun with Sylvia. Oh, you dear dumbasses. The following day, Gertrude testified in her own defense, which sometimes is not the brightest maneuver you can do in court. He denied any responsibility for Sylvia's prolonged abuse, torment, and ultimate death, claiming her children and other children within her neighborhood must have committed the acts within her home, which she described as being such a madhouse. She also added that she had been too preoccupied with her own ill health 
and depression to control the children. Oh, she just threw them all under the bus. She just went, nah, I wasn't responsible for it. Them kids did it. I was over in the corner drooling and peeing on myself to pay any attention. In response to questioning relating to whether she had physically abused the Lycan sisters, Gertrude claimed that although she had started to spank Sylvia on one occasion, she was emotionally unable to finish doing so and had not hit the child on any further occasion. Oh, I just couldn't do it, Yana. I just couldn't do it. I, being a Southern woman, I just couldn't lift my hand to that poor child. She denied any knowledge of Sylvia having ever endured any beating, scalding, branding, or burning with her in her home. And you know Pinocchio sitting over there in the corner just waiting for that nose to grow. Two days later, Richard Hobbs testified in his own defense. <laughs> like We've seen this has gone good so far. Describing how Gertrude called Sylvia to the kitchen on October 23rd and stated to her, you have branded my children, so now I'm going to brand you. Hobbs testified Gertrude had begun etching the insult into Sylvia's abdomen before asking him to finish the task. Although he testified this act of branding had brought blood to the surface of her flesh, and as Sylvia had begged him to stop, he remained adamant that the section of branding he had inflicted had been light. Let's ask a cow how they like being branded, all right? Hobbs further testified that he had initially believed Sylvia would not be at Gertrude's house on the 26th, as Gertrude had informed him she intended to get rid of Sylvia the prior day. He further stated that after Sylvia's death, he had simply returned home to watch the rest of the Lloyd Daxton show. I don't know who Lloyd is, but um, I ain't even going to bother to look it up. Probably some fly-by-night TV from the 60s, you know. Why don't you just watch Leave with the Beaver reruns like everyone else did, dumbass? Yeah. <laughs> or My Three Sons, you know? Or he hauled up in three. Uh, not quite. I think He Haw came in the 70s. Okay, yeah. Before my time. Yeah, He Haw was the 70s because... They, along with the Dukes of Hazard, pioneered the Daisy Dukes look. And, you know, the hee-haw honey. So, you know. America, we love our rednecks. Now, when Marie was called to the stand as a witness for the defense, she broke down and admitted that she had heated the needle which Hobbs had used to brand Sylvia's abdomen. Marie also testified as to her mother's indifference to Sylvia's evident distress in relation to the physical and mental abuse she had increasingly suffered, with her mother's full knowledge, stating that on one occasion, Gertrude had sat upon a chair and crocheted as she watched a neighborhood girl named Anna Sisko attack Sylvia. Marie added that although all five defendants had repeatedly physically and mentally tormented Sylvia, she had most often witnessed her mother and sister committing these acts before her mother had forced Sylvia to live in the basement where the abuse had further escalated and she had ultimately died. See, don't include... This is another lesson here, children. Never include your kids into what you're doing because they will rat you out. I mean... 
uh, that's just a plain fact. If, if the if lawyers get to get to your kid and start saying, "Hey, you know, we're going to cut you a sweet deal, whatever," your child will rat you out. Another witness to testify on behalf of the prosecution, Grace Sargent, stated how she had sat close to Paula on a church bus and heard her openly bragging about breaking her own wrist due to the severity of a beating she had inflicted to Sylvia's face on August 1st. Sargent testified Paula had finished her boasting by saying, I tried to kill her. On May 16th, a court-appointed doctor named Roy Schuster testified on behalf of the prosecution. When questioned by Leroy New as to the exhaustive interviews and assessments he had conducted with Gertrude, Schuster stated that she had been evasive and uncooperative. Schuster testified as to his belief that Gertrude was sane and fully in control of her actions, adding that she had been sane in October 1965 and remain sane to this date. Dr. Schuster was subjected to over two hours of intense cross-examination by Gertrude's lawyer, William Urbecker, although he remained steadfast that Gertrude was not and had never been psychotic. Deputy Prosecutor Marjorie Westner delivered the state's closing argument before the jury on behalf of the prosecution. As each defendant, except Richard Hobbs, remained impassive, Wesner recounted the continuous mistreatment Likens had endured before her death, emphasizing that at no point had Likens either provoked any of the defendants or received any medical care beyond occasionally having margarine rubbed into scalded sections of her face and body. Referencing specific forms and means of abuse and neglect at the defendants' hands and their collective failure to either help Likens or deter each other from mistreating her, Westner described Likens' abuse as stomach-wrenching and compared her treatment at the hands of all five defendants as being the equivalent in severity to that committed against prisoners in Nazi concentration camps. In reference to the premeditated nature of Likens' death, Westner pointed the jury's attention to the news Gertrude and had forced Likens to write on October 24th, stating... Gertrude knew on October 24th she was going to hold these notes until she and the rest of the defendants had completed the murder of Sylvia. Holding aloft a portrait of Sylvia taken before July 1965, Westner added, I wish she were here today with eyes as in this picture, full of hope and anticipation. William Urbecker was the first defense attorney to deliver his closing argument before the jury. He attempted to portray his client as being insane and thus unable to appreciate the severity of criminality of her actions, stating, I condemn her for being a murderess. That's what I do. But I say she's not responsible because she's not all here. (laughs) Herbecker then tapped his head to emphasize his reference to her state of mind before adding, If this woman is sane, put her in the electric chair. Fire it up. She committed acts of degradation that you wouldn't commit on a dog. She has to be crazy, or she wouldn't have permitted that. You'll have to live with your conscience the rest of your life if you send an insane woman to the electric chair. I'll sleep easy at night. Yep, so would I. Holding aloft an autopsy photograph of Likens, 
Erbecker instructed the jury to look at this exhibit, adding, look at the lips on that girl. How sadistic can a person get? The woman is stark mad. Erbecker then, ref- ref- then referred to the earlier testimony of a psychiatrist who had called into question Gertrude's sanity before concluding his argument. Forrest Bowman began his closing argument in an openly critical manner as he attacked the decision of the prosecution to seek the death penalty for juveniles, stating, I would like to have an hour of time to explain why 16-year-olds and 13-year-olds should not be put to death. Mama said it's bad if you put a child to death. Well, except if they did that stuff. But these little sons of bitches did that, so I say go ahead and fry them mm-hmm. like shrimp in Bubba's kitchen. On the bar. <laughs> right. Refraining from acknowledging the catalog of atrocities each had inflicted upon Likens, Bowman repeatedly emphasized his client's age, stating each was only guilty of assault and battery before seeking a verdict of not guilty for each youth. Mm. George Wrights began his closing argument by decrying the fact Paula and the other defendants had been tried jointly, sidestepping the multiple instances of testimony delivered at trial, describing Paula and her mother as by far the most enthusiastic participants in Lincoln's physical abuse. Rice claimed the evidence presented against his client did not equate to her actual guilty of murder. He then ended his closing argument with a plea for the jury to return a verdict of not guilty on a girl who had gone through the indignity of being tried in an open court. You know, the the way that he described, like, uh, Gertrude and her daughter being uh, the main perpetrators of the uh, the abuse. Yes. For some reason, my mind went to these two, like, in a tag team wrestling match where mom gets... Where mom gets tired, she sticks out her hand, tags in her daughter. She holds Sylvia for a little bit. She gets a couple cheap shots in, and then the daughter takes over for a little bit. It's probably not that far, actually, from what actually happened. (laughs) Probably not. I'm just guessing on this. Yeah, but... James Netter began his closing arguments in defense of Richard Hobbs by referring to the loss of Sylvia, stating... She had a right to live. In my own heart, I cannot remember a girl so much Cindy. Oh, wait. I need I need a better voice for this one. She had a right to live. In my own heart, I cannot remember a girl so much sinned against and abused. That sounded better. It made me think that he might be a fire and brimstone preacher, you know, pacing the pulpit, you know, working up the crowd. Someone in the back kicking up the organ for a hallelujah. He then referred to Hobbes' courage in opting to testify in his own defense and the savage and relentless cross-examination to which he had been subjected by Leroy New. Netter attempted to portray his client as a follower-type personality who had acted under the control of Gertrude, suggesting that he had not carved part of the obscene insult into her abdomen at Gertrude's request, he could have well been a state's witness as opposed to Stephanie. He then referred to Jenny's overall failure to notify authorities of her sister's abuse 
until she had already died, describing her as a, a sister who could limp three and a half miles to the park, but couldn't take two or three steps out into New York Street to beg for help. I get it. That sounds like I could use that as uh, the the preacher and the and the and the lawyer. Netter ended his closing arguments by requesting a verdict of not guilty, stating Hobbs was guilty of immaturity and gross lack of judgment, but not for the crime of murder. Basically, saying okay, he, he he's a typical teenager; he's just going to follow the crowd, uh, but he's not guilty of murder. Now, Leroy. Leroy Jenkins. Leroy New rebutted the defense counsel's closing arguments by promising to speak through the mangled and shredded lips of Sylvia Likens. I see her wherever I look. She's over there. She's over there. Outlining the catalog of mistreatment Sylvia had endured prior to her death at the hands of each of the defendants. New directly addressed criticism he had earlier received from Forrest Bowman in his closing argument regarding the prosecution's cross-examining children, stating, The prosecutor's job is to present the evidence to the best of our ability. Now, let's look at some of the responsibilities here. Each one of five defendants had first and foremost the responsibility to leave Sylvia Likens alone. We had the responsibility to bring all the evidence we could find that could explain this crime. Referring to the sentimental closing arguments made by various defense counsels regarding reasoning and motivation for their clients' actions, their attempts to divert responsibility to other defendants or participants, and their clients' collective failure to either help Likens or to notify authorities, Leroy added, all we hear is whining appeal. Anything but blame where the blame belongs. He then speculated as to the reason Sylvia did not try to escape from Gertrude's house prior to the abuse increasingly escalating in the final weeks of her life, stating, I think she trusted a man. I think she did not believe these people would do this and continue to do it. New concluded, his closing arguments by emphasizing the defendant's unison and their collective mistreatment of Sylvia before asking the jury to dismiss arguments made by various defense counsels regarding who may have actually inflicted the fatal blow to Sylvia's head, stating every mark on that girl's body contributed directly to her death. And that was testimony. The subdural hematoma was the ultimate blow. This is the most hideous thing Indiana has ever seen, and I hope will ever see. I don't know. Indiana gave birth to, to uh, Jim Jones, so. Um, stay- and the Heck family. Who? And the Heck family. Right, and um, the Jackson Five, and. Uh, well, the back in- I'm, I'm binging it right now, so. Right, well, back in the. <laughs> Back in the twenties, Indiana was a strong clan, strong, strongly clan supported state. Air TV show family. Ah, uh, well, I, um, oh, and John Dillinger's buried there. So John John Dillinger came from <laughs> uh, Indiana. Yeah, so basically, the hex are the only good thing to come out. <laughs> right. Indiana. Uh, 
Indiana. They didn't really come out of Indiana. So there we go. And the Jacksons. So, uh, okay. Yeah. And Jacksons. Well, I know, um, I just had it here in my head. Um, there, there was a clan leader in the twenties who took the clan national. I, I know the dollop did a show on him. I want to find a book on him because I think he'd be a great topic for us because he basically had control of every state, state, uh, county, and municipal um, official in his pocket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and the Indianapolis was the site of the first crime con to go so yeah, that's about two and a half hours for me. Yeah, so. Uh, stating that not a shred of evidence has been produced indicating any defendant was suffering from a form of mental illness, New again requested the death penalty for each defendant, stating to the jury, the issue here is not about the electric chair. Bullshit. Or a hospital. But about law and order. We will shy away from the most diabolical case to ever come from. Will we shy away from the most diabolical case to ever come before a court or jury? If you go below the death penalty, in this case, you will lower the value of human life by that much for each defendant. The blood of this girl will forevermore be on their souls. Nevermore. The trial of the five defendants lasted 17 days before the jury retired to consider its verdict. On May 19, 1966, after deliberating for eight hours, the panel of eight men and four women found Gertrude Banaszewski guilty of first-degree murder, recommending a sentence of life imprisonment. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder, and Hobbs, Hubbard, and John Jr. were found guilty of manslaughter. Upon hearing Judge Rapp pronounce the verdicts, Gertrude and her children burst into tears and attempted to console each other as Tobbs and Hubbard remained impassive. Those two were probably high-fiving each other. Yeah, manslaughter! Uh-huh. Woo! On May 25th, Gertrude and Paula were formally sentenced to life imprisonment. The same day, Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Jr. each received sentences of 2 to 21 years to be served in the Indiana Reformatory. Was that the same place Manson was? No, because he wasn't, I don't know. Like in... I'll have to go back and look, but I'm sure yeah. they walked into a cell and saw it carved on the wall. Charlie was here. Well, it wasn't by that time. It was close to when he was in California anyway. In prison. Right, there. but I mean, I, no, in his youth he could have served might. Again, some at some time he probably was, but I'm not sure right then. In September 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court reversed the convictions of Gertrude and Paula on the basis that Judge Saul Isaac Robb had denied repeatedly submitted motions by their defense counsel at their original trial for both a change of venue and separate trials. This ruling further stated that the circumstances regarding the prejudicial atmosphere. Well, no, it does prejudicial. Like, that's why I love that prejudicial. Like you made it right. prejudicial by the way you acted. <gasps> okay. Created during their initial trial due to the extensive news media publicity surrounding the case impeded any chance of either appellant receiving a fair trial. 
Well, that's your fault. And you know who wanted a fair shot at life? Sylvia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going in. The pair were retried in 1971. On this occasion, Paula opted to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter rather than face a retrial. Take the yet. deal. Take the deal. She was sentenced to serve a term of between two and 20 years imprisonment for her part in Lycan's abuse and death. Despite twice unsuccessfully having attempted to escape from prison in 1971. Yeah, because she really felt like she deserved anything. <laughs> she was released in December 1972. Oh, my God. Gertrude, however, was again convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Over the course of the following 14 years, Gertrude became known as a model prisoner. Oh, how sweet. At the Indiana Women's Prison, she worked in the prison sewing shop and was known as somewhat of a den mother to younger female inmates, becoming known to some within the prison by the nickname Mom. By the time of Gertrude's ultimate parole in 1985, she had changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen, a combination of her middle name and maiden name, and described herself as a devout Christian. Of course, she did. You know, it's always amazing that I, you know, even the hardened, most hardened criminals find religion in prison. Yeah, somehow they couldn't find it beforehand, but, you know. If if that ever happened to me, I would start a religion in prison. Yeah. (laughs) You know what? You can find religion, but can you start a religion? (laughs) Right. It takes a true man to start a religion (laughs) in prison. Uh Not find religion, start religion. Friends. Welcome to the First Church of Cell Block D. I'm your pastor, Scotty J. And today we're going to beg forgiveness upon the Lord. Now, our Lord don't sit up on a cross. He's in an electric chair. Pray to Jebus. Now, news of Gertrude's impending parole hearing created an uproar throughout Indiana, and I imagine it would. Jenny and other immediate family members of Sylvia vehemently protested against any prospect of her release. The members of two anti-crime groups also traveled to Indiana to oppose her potential parole and to publicly support the Likens family. Members of both groups initiated a sidewalk picket campaign. Over the course of two months, these groups collected over 40,000 signatures from the citizens of Indiana, including signatures obtained from outraged citizens who were too young to com- to contemporarily recollect the case. All signatures gathered demanded that Gertrude remain incarcerated for the main- remainder of her natural life, and then they were going to take her bones, put them in a box, put that box behind a cage, and keep her for her natural death. Within her parole hearing, Gertrude stated her wish that Sylvia's death could be undone, although she minimized her responsibility for any of her actions, stating, I'm not sure what role I had in her death, or, yeah, I'm not sure what role I had in because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. I take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia. Taking Gertrude's good conduct in prison into account, the parole board marginally voted in favor of granting her parole, and she was re- released from prison on December 4th, 1985. There should have been a sniper outside the gates waiting for her. 
Now, following her 85 release from prison, Gertrude relocated to Iowa, because why the fuck not? She never accepted full responsibility for Sylvia's prolonged torment and death, insisting she was unable to precisely recall any of her actions in the month of her prolonged and increasing abuse and torment within her home. Now, she primarily, primarily blamed her actions upon the medication she had been described to treat asthma. Folks, for those of you that have asthma out there, when have you ever puffed on your inhaler and went and killed somebody? Besides Monica. Anybody? Anybody, you know, little puff puff and go on a murderous rampage? No? Didn't think so. Gertrude lived in relative obscurity because it is Iowa. In Laurel, Iowa, until her death due to lung cancer on June 16, 1990, at the age of 61. Now, regarding Gertrude's death and the issues raised per pertaining to her sanity at both of her trials, John Dean, a former reporter for the Indianapolis Star who had provided its extensive coverage for the case, stated in 2015, I never thought she was insane. I thought she was a downtrodden, mean woman. That's probably about as good as a combination we're going to get there, John. Dean had also likened the case to William Golding's novel, Lord of the Flies. Although he had stated Likens increasing physical and emotional abuse was not a result of children going wild, it was children doing what they were told. Of Gertrude's actual motive for tormenting and ultimately murdering Sylvia, attorney Forrest Bowman opined in 2014, she had a miserable life. What I think this was ultimately was about was jealousy. Her mama said life is like a box of chocolates. Ain't that right, Lieutenant Diane? Fight. I'm sorry, man. That movie gets so much better when Gary Sinise enters it. Uh-huh. Well, kiss my crippled ass. I, I have actually said that on some occasions when I couldn't walk. <laughs> Not surprised at all. I memorized. I, I did that whole speech and, <laughs> and looked at it and went, kiss my crippled ass. It always got a laugh out of everybody. I'm waiting until I can actually be in a wheelchair to say it. Fingers crossed. Get, just let my knees hold out just for five more years, folks. After her 72 parole, Paula assumed a new identity. She worked as an aide to a school. No! Don't let this woman hear children! She worked as an aide to a school counselor for 14 years at the Beeman Conrad Lipscomb Union Witten Community School in Conrad, Iowa. If you could say that in one breath like I did, hallelujah. Having changed her name to Paula Pace and concealing the truth regarding her criminal history when applying for the position. She was fired in 2012 when the school discovered her true identity. Yay, school boards! Paula married and had two children. You should have sterilized her in prison. Okay, I know that sounds a little draconic and almost like, you know, Nazi torture scheme here, but no, 
That woman should not have been allowed to have children. Sylvia couldn't have kids because she's dead. Sterilize that woman in prison. Now, the baby daughter to whom she had given birth while awaiting the trial in 66, and whom she named after her mother was later adopted, that kid had that kid had a chance at life. I'm sorry. I I say that about one of my nephews. He he was adopted by his foster parents. He's got a good chance at life. This kid, this kid had a good chance of life there. Now, the murder charges initially filed against Gertrude's second eldest daughter, 15-year-old Stephanie, were ultimately dropped after she agreed to turn state's evidence against the other defendants. Although prosecutors re- did resubmit their case against Stephanie before a grand jury on May 26, 1966. Decision to later prosecute her in a separate trial never materialized. Stephanie assumed a new name and became a school teacher. Don't let this girl... Well, wait, she turned state's evidence, so... Still don't let her near kids. She later married and had several... Oh, she should have been sterilized, too. She had sev- several children, we don't know how many, and she was last known to have resided in Florida, where she was seen walking into the Everglades one night with a pocket full of pork chops. When questioned at trial as to her motive for turning state's evidence, Stephanie stated, I'm just here in the hope I can help anybody. In response, her mother's attorney, William Erbecker, replied, including yourself? Uh, yeah. Shortly after their mother's arrest, the Marion County Department of Public Welfare placed Marie, Shirley, and James in the care of separate foster families. The surname of all three children was legally changed to Blake. Oh, yeah, that's another real good, yeah. Robert Blake, you know. So. Yep. Yeah, that's right a, Yeah, just pick, like, Smith or something. In the late 1960s, after their father regained their custody. Murray later married. Marie Shelton died of natural causes on June 8th, 2017, at the age of 62. Dennis Lee Wright Jr. was later adopted. His adopted mother named him Denny Lee White. He died on February 5th, 2012, at the age of 47. Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Banaszewski Jr. all served less than two years in the end. Indiana Reformatory before being granted parole on February 27, 1968. Richard Hobbs died of lung cancer on January 2, 1972, at the age of 21, less than four years after his release from the Indiana Reformatory. In the years between his release from the Indiana Reformatory and his death, he is known to have suffered at least one nervous breakdown. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Following his 1968 release from the Indiana Reformatory, Coy Hubbard remained in Indiana and never attempted to change his name. Throughout his adult life, Hubbard was repeatedly imprisoned for various criminal offenses, on one occasion being charged with the 1977 murders of two young men, although largely due to the fact that the chief witness to testify at his trial had been a convicted criminal acquaintance of Hubbard, who admitted to having been in his company at the time of the murders, he was acquitted of this charge. 
shortly after the January 2007 premiere of the crime drama film An American Crime, Hubbard was fired from his job. He died of a heart attack in Shelbyville, Indiana, on June 23rd of that year at the age of 56. Uh, I did a quick look, and uh, there are some books on uh, Robert Blake. Of course, yeah. I knew that. I didn't know that, so Uh, Uh I'm going to order a couple. I've eaten at the restaurant. Like, of course you have. <laughs> John, John Stephen Jr. lived in relative obscurity under the alias John Blake. He became a lay minister, frequently hosting counseling sessions for the children of divorced parents. Several decades after his release from the Indiana Reformatory, John Banaszewski Jr. issued a statement in which he acknowledged the fact he and his co-defendants should have been sentenced to a more severe term of punishment, adding that young criminals are not beyond rehabilitation and describing how he had become a productive citizen. He died of diabetes in the Lancaster General Hospital on May 19, 2005, at the age of 52. Prior to his death, he had also occasionally spoken publicly about his past, readily admitting he had enjoyed the attention Lycan's murder brought him, brought upon him, and also claiming to have only ever hit Sylvia once. The injury to person charges brought against the other juveniles, known to have actively, physically, mentally, and emotionally tormented Sylvia, Anna Ruth Sisko, Judy Darlene Duke, Michael John Monroe, Darlene McGuire, and Randy Gordon Lepper, <laughs> that's a nice name, were all later dropped. Cisco died on October 23rd, 1996, at the age of 44. She was already a grandmother. Lepper, who had visibly smirked as he testified to having hit Sylvia on up to 40 separate occasions, died at the age of 56 on November 14th, 2010. Jenny later married an Indianapolis native named Leonard Reese Wade. The couple had two children, although she remained traumatized by the abuse she had been forced to watch her sister endure. For the remainder of her life, Jenny was dependent upon anxiety medication. She died of a heart attack on June 23, 2004, at the age of 54 in Beach Grove, Indiana. Fourteen years before her own death, Jenny Likens Wade had viewed Gertrude's obituary in a newspaper. She clipped a section from the paper, then mailed it to her mother with the accompanying note reading, Some good news. Damn old Gertrude died. Ha 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 ha. I'm happy about that. Elizabeth and Lester. The the parents in this unfolding drama died in 1998 and 2013, respectively. In the years prior to her own death, Jenny Likens Wade had repeatedly emphasized that no blame should be attributed to either of her parents for placing her or Sylvia in the care of Gertrude, as all her parents had done was to naively trust Gertrude's promise to care for the sisters until their return to Indiana with the traveling carnival. The house at 3850 East New York Street, in which Sylvia had been tortured and murdered, stood vacant for many years after her death and the arrest of her tormentors. The property gradually became dilapidated. Although discussions were held about the possibility of purchasing and rehabilitating the house and converting the property into a women's shelter, 
The necessary funds to complete this project were never raised. The house itself was demolished on April 23rd, 2009, and the site is now a church parking lot, and I do believe that there is a memorial for Sylvia placed near the location. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, at least some, you know, yeah. there, there is a memorial to Sylvia. She's not uh-huh. forgotten. Yeah. Gertrude, I hope you're roasting in hell. I feel like a lot, so many of the people like really did have long lives. Well, it seems like every one of the tormentors died young, kind of. Yeah. You know, between uh-huh. their between their forties and their sixties. Yeah. Well, even Jenny, though, too. Same. Right. Thing. I mean, and you know that poor girl, you know, spent her, the rest of her life on anxiety meds because of what happened to her sister. You know, you don't recover from that. No. You know, and and I hope it is my it is my dearest hope that her husband was compassionate enough to help her with it, to understand what she had gone through, what she witnessed her sister going through, and was a comfort when she absolutely needed it. Yeah, <laughs> I um, right. yeah, but yeah, it was like. Yeah, the ages, it's like insane. Yeah. 21 of lung cancer. I'm like, don't tell me that wasn't karma, too. All right. Well, you know, back there in the 50s and 60s, there was asbestos in a lot of things. So, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, some mesothelioma came in there. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's going to wrap up our yeah. look at Sylvia. Folks, it. it I just spent the weekend. I I took my kids to see a great movie. I I think you you know if you love a good B horror movie, go watch Cocaine Bear. And Kasabian too. Yeah, I looked that up. That was last month. Yeah, but the news hadn't really come right. No, now yet, but it was like wow. So that's like another person from the whole. Yeah. Dancing. Stuff. Yeah, like, Van Van Houten's left. Yeah, Krenwinkel, Watson. Um, I thought Krenwinkel had died. Yeah, only Atkins has died. Okay, so we got Van Houten, Krenwinkel, Watson. Yeah, of the murderers of those two nights, only Atkins has died. So everybody else is still alive. And since Kasabian was right, the there, driver. Least, but yeah, she. Um, Squeaky's still alive? Yes. Mm-hmm. Damn, she, man. That one was going to live forever. I know, right? This was you kind of felt like with like Manson too, kind of someone, you know? Was, well, this is what my mom and I say about my father. Is like, he, he's not going to die. Crazy lives forever. Mm-hmm. Although we have not seen them since my aunt did, so... I think we could breathe, breathe a sigh of relief around here. That's good. Yeah. Yes, I don't want to ruin my car running them down. True. Well, I can, you can borrow mine. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'll drive out to Jersey, get your car, drive it back to Illinois. If it makes it that far. <laughs> um, you know, what what does your ex husband drive? I can't remember which step. Because, yeah, excuse 
had the same. I've had my car, it'll be 19 years in the fall. It's the car itself is like 22 or 22, 23 years old. He has one from like 2009. A couple of years ago, he already busted right through it. Well, I was going to say, what does he drive? Because I'll just take his car and. Um... Yeah, good luck seeing you have to. <laughs> oh, I don't care. You know, if they bust me, I'll just say my Vin- my name. I'll give them his name. Uh huh. Yeah, so you're like, you're good. <laughs> uh, sir, what were you Part doing? In the head. <laughs> what were you doing in Illinois driving over? <laughs> Now, not like I sit up at you know at night and plot this stuff. Oh no! All right. As of right now, I have not heard anything on us being admitted to iTunes, but it is it, it, it is submitted. Yay! Now, just because we go to iTunes doesn't mean that the show is going to become highbrow. You're still going to get the same, you know. The same standards you've grown used to. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, yes, granted, we'll be able to reach a bigger audience and actually get reviews and stuff, but. Oh, damn, I don't want to go to work in the morning. I don't, but I have to. Pay the big bucks. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, well, hopefully things work out. Hopefully by the end of this week, I've heard something. Uh, keep uh, keep an eye on the Facebook page. I'll make the announcement there when we are officially on iTunes. I I would look. No, nah, I'm not going to look it up now. Fuck it. Yeah. But for. You know where to find us, Spotify, all that stuff, the Facebook page. Join us there and for Killers, Cults, and Nut Jobs 2.0, I'm Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica.